welcome to Writing in Faith, a podcast about the Christian and writing life. I'm your host, Daniel Dynek, and this week we're talking about living your best life now, what that means for us as Christians, and how we view it and pursue it. For writers, we'll be talking about what it takes to write your best book now, and the mindset we need to have to achieve that impossible dream. It'll be a fun ride, so let's go. A couple very interesting things happened, not just this week, but a couple things in previous weeks that it just kind of really came home for me this past week. So I wanted to kind of take a step back a little bit, kind of reminisce, if you will. So sit back, relax, and just hang on because it's going to be story time here. About a month or so ago, I think, I was reading a book by Janelle Leanne Schmidt. She's an indie author, has one series published And I think she's working on finishing up a second one and releasing it. But the series I was reading was the Minstrel's Song series. And I was in the fourth book, the fourth and final book of that series. And it was good. (laughs) If you read my review on Amazon or Goodreads, I really enjoyed the book. For a while, I kind of, I wouldn't say I wasn't enjoying it, but it just, it wasn't really gripping me for one reason or another. And there's nothing, I mean, nothing wrong with it, for sure. It was really well written. Um, but I kind of, for some reason, it wasn't until about halfway through it or so that I really just like stopped the one evening as I was reading it and really appreciated how good the book was being up to that point. And kind of when I did that, it made me think back to reading the very first book. I started thinking back over the journey that these characters had had, like how much had happened in the previous three books that got them to where they were. Then I kind of carried on reading and finished it and it was really good. And somewhere around that same time, I was looking at the Wheel of Time series sitting on my library shelf, and kind of the same thing happened where I had just finished reading book nine a couple weeks prior to that, and thinking about where the characters were, and thinking back to the very first scene, or the very first couple of scenes in The Eye of the World, the very first book in that series, and how long ago that was, how much these characters had gone through. And it just really hit me with kind of a sense of nostalgia to think back, you know, with books, I can look on the shelf and see, you know, for Robert Jordan's, it was nine books, what I have read so far, and think back over all that has happened in that like physical span of pages. It was really, really cool. And then what kind of actually happened to me this week then was Monday, I sat down and wrote the first words for book four. And I couldn't help but stop and think back to the beginning of this series. It was 2002 when I sat down just out of frustration the one day. I'd I'd written myself to a halt with my military fiction. Again, another book just kind of bit the dust partway into it. And I just sat down and wrote the line. The year was 1319. The exact date was unknown to three travelers traveling through the northern forest. Not a great opening line with using the word travel twice. I fixed that pretty quickly. But I wrote that line like I don't know why I chose 1319. I knew I wanted it to be kind of a medieval fantasy book, as most of them are. And so, you know, the 1300s was a good medieval century. And But I didn't know why they didn't know the date. I, you know, I didn't know where the Northern Forest was. I didn't know why they were in it. Um, I think even as I was writing it, the narrator mentioned no one knew why they were there or whatever. Obviously, the characters should have, but trying to make it sound kind of mysterious and mystical and fantastic and things like that. So there are three characters. It was at that point, it was Follidus was the main character, Jeffrey, 
and a character that I called Platt. His name, he was the only one that went by his last name at that point. His name was Greca Platt. Kind of a weird first name, especially now that it's reversed. But at that point, it was Greca Platt until I joined a writer's group on Yahoo. If you all remember Yahoo groups, those were the thing back in the day. And one of my first comments from someone who read the that first chapter was that they kept saying it greasy plate. Obviously, I couldn't do that. So since I was calling him Platt anyway, I just I switched his name back around. So now it was Plate Greasy, <laughs> if they if they still felt like pronouncing it that way. But I just called him Platt the whole time. So it was those three characters, and I had almost nothing else in those very early days. I'm pretty sure I fairly quickly sat down and started fleshing this out a little bit more. But really, for the longest time there, in the book and obviously in my life, I had no idea where this was going. And I kept sticking with it though. A couple people, a couple of those people in that Yahoo group, Fairy Word Weavers was the group. It was such a good group to be in. There's just a little over 20 of us, I think, maybe under that even when I joined, but we were active. We were, we all had stuff we were writing and sharing it and critiquing it. And I could get on, I think when we had about 25 or 26 people, I could end up posting three or four things a day. And it was just, it was a really, really cool time for me. One of the things that came out was that people wanted more backstory and they felt like I should, I, or I could move the first chapter back in time. They wanted to hear more about Follidus, who became Hadron. By then, I think I was five or six chapters in, but I went back to the beginning or back to an earlier point, wrote a chapter. They wanted to hear from even more before that. So I went back again and wrote that chapter, rewrote the next chapter because by then I learned even more and I didn't like the way it sounded. So I rewrote that and I just, I kept working on it. Uh, from 2002, I finished it. I think the first draft in about 2005, I was in the army at that point. We were getting ready to deploy, but I think it was the summer before our deployment to Iraq. And I finished it, actually wrote uh, the last couple lines. And I'd taken, I think all of 2004 off. Like when I went to basic training, I kind of lost the motivation to write or the inspiration, I guess. And I didn't really pick it up again until 2005. And then just like slammed through the rest of the book. I had it probably a little better than halfway done when I joined, but not a whole lot more than that. Picked it up again, wrote like mad, finished it before we deployed. And then it was, what, seven years. Um, I lost another year when we were in Iraq because, again, I kind of lost the inspiration to write. But it was, so it was off and on, you know, kind of in the beginning there. But I always, I would always come back to it. And I had... Even in early, as early as 2002, I'd started planning the rest of the series and had, you know, the germs of ideas for pretty much all the books. And that has changed since then. But a lot of the stuff, like the whole series wide story that's going on, that has that stayed the same since 2002. And so, you know, it's just it's interesting <laughs> to think about that. Now we're going to talk about journeys, I think, next week. But that just that really came home to me. This week, like I said, with sitting down and, and really starting to dig into book four now, like this is with this draft, it officially is no longer a trilogy and it becomes a series. And so that just that struck me. and I kind of wanted to share it with you guys. I thought it was kind of fun. So I took a really long time to tell it. I hope it was interesting, though. Hope you're still listening. I'm still writing. I'm still writing. I'm still going to be doing this podcast. I think it's going to be good. That's kind of the big thing. I'm writing again. <laughs> I'm writing and editing. I am revising book three as I go, and I'm I'm really moving forward with writing book four and staying on track with my writing goals. So that's that's been super exciting. So glad you guys are here for the journey. I hope you stick around. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. So with that, let's go ahead and get into today's episode, though. 
So what do you think of when you think about living your best life? And I want you to take a moment here because, you know, maybe for some, it's a particular place that you've always wanted to live. I would be sorely tempted to move to Durango, Colorado right now if I could. Maybe it's just doing a certain type of work. And there too, I've got a job lined up for this summer that I'm pretty excited to begin. I'd say very excited to begin, even though I know there's going to be difficult aspects to it. I hope I enjoyed as much as I think I could. Or maybe you think your best life is with a certain person. Now, <laughs> just say so you no, know, it took me till the age of 31 to find my spouse. And though she's an incredible woman that I'm very lucky to have, it hasn't meant a marriage free of issues, especially after I was laid off back in November, which was two weeks after we closed on our first house. But by God's strength and direction, we're carrying on. So maybe for you, your best life means having enough money in retirement that you won't have to worry or having a whole batch of kids or maybe just a really close knit circle of friends. Regardless, each of us probably has an idea of what our best life would look like, and I would bet most of us don't feel like we're living it. Especially today, right? A lot of scary things are going on in the world right now. It was a little strange last week here in my house. Coronavirus was certainly around when I recorded that last episode where I said that there was not a lot happening this week, but it wasn't until the day after that recording that things here in Ohio actually started like shutting down. So as I'm recording this, our governor has, I guess he just won the fight with the courts to postpone our primary election until after things have calmed down. There's probably more to come on that, but I don't feel like getting into it. And I did worry for a little bit about the fact that I made no mention in my podcast episode of what was going on. But as I was watching our church's live stream on the Sunday after I released that episode, it struck me that at a time when all of our focus might easily and understandably be on what's happening here on earth, God had prompted me to talk about keeping our focus on his kingdom. And that principle of keeping our focus on his kingdom has been standing since long before COVID-19, and it will continue to stand long after it's gone or at least managed. I think too often we want our leaders to address the current situation specifically. And then when it's gone and a new one arises, we need them to address that situation and on and on forever. But the truth will still be the truth no matter what lie Satan concocts next. And if we familiarize ourselves with that truth, we'll find it applying to every situation no matter how new it seems. I think the same thing can happen with the pursuit of our best life. What we imagine it will be and what it turns out to be, in fact, are often in disagreement with each other. I think often what we imagine is also one of Satan's lies to keep us ungrateful and keep our eyes on this passing earth rather than on God's eternal kingdom. It's often time-bound, our desires or our idea of a perfect life. I want to have or be a certain thing at this certain time, or it's location-bound or relationship-bound or bound to this notion that we should reach a certain point in our lives and plateau in this ideal stasis, rather than the fact that life is a continuous journey over peaks and into valleys that eventually end at the throne of God one way or the other. So you ready for our verse yet? Because I think this is going to help us out. We're going to what should be kind of familiar ground because we're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where we spent all that time talking about freedom in Christ a couple weeks ago. But now we're skipping to the end, verses 24 through 27. Paul writes, says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. All the runners run, but only one gets the prize, he says. 
Okay, so these days, three of them get a prize, and in the even smaller races, everyone gets a finisher's medal, right? For some people, that finisher's medal represents a lot, and I don't want to take that away from them. All of heaven celebrates when one person comes to Christ, right? Paul's not talking about that this time. We already talked about that idea that as long as your foundation is Christ, you will be saved. You'll get your finisher's medal. Now, though, he's encouraging us to pursue our best life, run in such a way to get that top prize, that you run the best possible race you can. But the runners who do that, who even have a chance at that in the bigger races, aren't the ones who just show up on race day and go. Instead, they go into strict training, denying themselves things that will slow them down and practicing the things that will make them faster. We, too, cannot just show up to the door of temptation and go. By the time Jesus went to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, he had already spent countless hours in the synagogue, learning the scriptures and asking questions of the religious leaders. He had confirmed his calling in baptism when the heavens opened and God declared him his beloved son. So there's three things we need to get straight first before we can hope to live our best life. The prequel we discussed at length last time. We need to seek first God's kingdom. We need to commit to doing that in every situation and prayer. What we look at today is just building off that assumption. So the first thing is we need to know who we are. Just as Jesus heard this from God, so do we. We need to dig into the scriptures to see who we are according to God. Remember, Jesus had not done anything yet. His ministry did not start until after he returned from the wilderness. And yet God said he was well pleased with Jesus. Once we have that foundation in Christ, and we've allowed our sins to be taken away by Christ's work on the cross, God is well pleased with us. He loves us always before we even acknowledge him. I love my son too, no matter what, but I am not pleased when he allows frustration or selfish desire to keep him from doing things that I know will be good for him. Now, he's not even two years old yet, so there's only so much we can expect from him, so we'll pick this analogy back up in a few weeks. But for now, understand this difference between love and pleasure. One part of love is wanting to see a person grow into the best person they can be, and that exists no matter what state they are in currently. Pleasure is when they take action toward that goal, or at least don't allow themselves to put up hindrances to their own success. We'll probably develop this idea a little bit more in the future, but for now, let's move on. As you define who you are in light of the work of Christ, you'll need to learn what you've been called to. This is the second thing. Scripture can help at the start of this. Matthew 28, Jesus is preparing to ascend to heaven after he's been raised from the dead and has brought in the new covenant sealed by his sacrifice on the cross. And he tells us to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. That's the best place to start. The next question, though, is how we make disciples. And for this, you're going to need to go to God directly. Ephesians 2 verse 10 reminds us that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. My personal take on this is that he's not only prepared the particular work, but he knit us together in our mother's womb, as the psalmist says, at the exact time and location he intended for us to accomplish this work. There's something particular about this moment in time and the capabilities and gifts he's given us to do good work for his kingdom. Now, this doesn't mean you can't leave your hometown, and I'll illustrate this with an extreme example. Imagine God calls a particular couple to adopt a child from a particular country. Should that child refuse adoption because they were born there? Or did God cause the couple to be born where they were, and the child to be born where he or she was, in order for the adoption to bring the child to where the couple was? And will he not have work prepared for that child to do if they follow his will for their lives? So don't worry too much about place, except insofar as it equips you to do the work you are called to. So seek that first. Find out from God what work he has planned for you to do. There's one other little trick to help with this, but even if you sort this out, you must still take it to God for verification. Theologian Frederick Buchner said it this way, 
Vocation is the place where our deep gladness meets the world's deep need. I've heard it paraphrased this way, and I kind of like it more, that it's where our greatest passion meets the world's greatest need. This makes it deeply personal. Don't let someone else tell you what the world's greatest need is. Their particular passions will likely bias that perception. You need to determine for yourself what you think the world's deepest need is when you look around and see what's wrong with it. And then look inside yourself and determine what your greatest passion is and then see where those two things meet. Can I share a little bit of mine? We've already talked about my passions last week when we were talking about author brand. Christ, writing, and mountain biking. The world's greatest need, as I see it, is confidence. Seem weird? Think about it this way. Is there anything you can think of that you want to do, but you think you can't do it? That's a lack of confidence. Either you think you aren't capable, or you think people will laugh at you or criticize you if you try, or there will be no good or lasting effect from your efforts even if you do succeed. That what you try to do just isn't important. But notice too, I did not say self-confidence. One of the worst things we can do is be confident in ourselves. Instead, we need to be confident in Christ, which is the whole reason I'm doing this particular topic today. To live your best life, you'll need to define who you are in Christ first, then figure out what work God has prepared in advance for you to do. And the third thing you need to do? Pursue it. Figure out what training you need to do. What do you need to deny yourself as it will only slow you down? What do you need to begin to practice in order to make you faster? As Paul says, don't run as someone running aimlessly. Don't fight like a boxer beating the air. Maybe your greatest fear is ridicule. Train yourself to continue to define yourself in Christ rather than by people's opinion. Or maybe you're afraid of failing to hit the mark. Is there a mark that's closer or easier to hit? Pray to God, aim for that one, and learn from the results. You only fail if you stop trying. Otherwise, you've just given yourself the opportunity to learn to do better next time. No boxer enters the ring and wins without having trained and failed and trained harder. Maybe they've never been knocked out in an organized fight, but I guarantee they worked long and hard with a trainer that could have taken them out at will in the early stages. I'm sorry I have to be a little bit vague here, but it's because I don't know what it is exactly you've been given to do. What I can share with you, however, is what I've done as a writer. And I'll share with you an interesting comment from one of my early readers for book three. He said this about a quarter of the way through the book. I'm also enjoying Kibo's realness. I love that he pays so much attention to the stone obelisk because he's an earth magician. In much the same way, I enjoy that you point out how he notices the earthen world around him, often by describing it more than the other elements. For example, all that about the stone, and you covered dirt, mud, and clay a few times, but didn't once mention what the water he sailed on looked like. I assume that's because Kibo simply doesn't care. Excellent. Also, on page 43, you spend time describing different sand. So cool. Obviously, this is a wonderful, wonderful comment to receive from an early reader. I can only imagine how much more it would have meant if I had done any of that on purpose. And that's my point here. Not to brag like maybe you thought I was, though maybe this does make you want to read it when it's available, which I hope. The point instead is that this isn't the first time something like this has happened. I remember a moment in By Ways Unseen as I was getting close to the end of the book and I decided I want to go back through and weave in a certain subplot that I needed for the ending. The crazy thing was, the subplot was already there. I already had, two or three times, randomly decided to put something in, thinking I might use this later, and it led directly to the subplot I wanted at the end. A similar thing happened in The First to Forgive. I introduced a certain thing, gave it meaning that was appropriate for the time, and by the end of the book, it was exactly what Katie needed to complete her quest. But when I introduced it, I had no plan whatsoever in ending it that way. I say that only to say this. 
I believe God has gifted me with a certain amount of writing ability, and he continues to step in and give me little bits of help along the way. But it is not enough to sit on that ability and only go so far as it will take me. For us as writers, in order to write our best book, we have got to keep practicing and learning. And not everything we write should be published. I started about a dozen stories, actually finished one or two, but they'll never see the light of day. I don't even think I have them anymore. I'm committed to self-publishing the rest of this series, and I'm hoping my next project will be something an agent and traditional publishers will want. I'm guessing even with this current series, and I'm going to work with every fiber of my being to make it so, that the books are going to be well-written enough that an agent or traditional publisher might want them. So why am I not pursuing traditional publishing with book one? Well, honestly, the query is killing me. I've been trying for eight years to summarize by ways unseen in a sentence or two that sounds interesting. And no matter what I try to say by ways unseen is about, it either sounds boring or is a lie. I love the book. No matter how many times I've read through it, I can open to any page and start reading and I'm sucked right back in. It does everything I want it to. It tells the story, develops the themes, and kicks off this series exactly as I imagined and hoped. And I think there's some super cool things I've got going on in it. And I've gotten lots of very exciting feedback about it. Some not so excited, sure, but mostly good stuff. And I like the first to forgive even better. And I'm super excited about book three and where the series is starting to head now. Who knows, maybe I just lack confidence. But as I continue to write this series, my confidence is growing in leaps and bounds. As I talked about in the intro, just the fact that I've stuck with it for 18 years is awesome for me. But none of that would be happening if I didn't continue to learn and hone my craft. I care about writing well and writing good stories that are not only interesting to me, but are just good stories. The themes I develop in them are important, I feel, and I think the world needs them. I will say, it's really awesome to see writers grow. And you don't get to see this as clearly with traditionally published authors, because a host of editors are going to raise the quality of writing to a certain level before it's put into the world. And that's part of what I'm loving about reading indie authors, is across a series like Janelle Leanne Schmitz, or Caitlin Buxton, who also wrote a fantastic series about the warriors of Aralan, you get to see them grow and learn and be better writers and storytellers. And we all need to do this. God may have given us a gift and passion for it, but it still remains for us to train and grow. And I hope you'll do the same. That's going to be all for me for now, because next week, if you join again, we're going to be talking about this journey specifically. Now that we have this vision or goal of our best life, what is it going to look like to actually pursue it? All that and more next week. Until then, keep the faith and keep writing.